This podcast number 802 with Dr. James Gordon is brought to you by Stan Cox, author of a new book entitled The Green New Deal and Beyond, Ending the Climate Emergency While We Still Can. Please listen to podcast number 803 where Stan and Greg had a very informative discussion about climate energy, climate change, solar and wind panels, and fossil fuels. They talk about the Green, the New Deal, and the Beyond part of the book, which is essentially a vision to get out of Great Recession by creating jobs, building up renewable energy, and green infrastructure as economic stimulus. If you want to learn more about Stan Cox and his new book, The Green New Deal and Beyond, please go to www.citylights.com. That's C-I-T-Y-L-I-G-H-T-S dot com. And now for our featured podcast, please listen to Greg's interesting interview with Dr. James Garden about his book, Discovering Wholeness in Healing After Trauma. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I have Dr. James Gordon with me. And Dr. Gordon is a returning guest on our show. Believe it or not, I just went back to the archives to look at his interview with Unstuck. And it was podcast number 60 in 2008, October of 2008. Um, if my listeners can believe that, uh, I'm approaching 800 right now. So uh, Dr. Gordon has uh, been, I'm not going to say a fan of mine, but the reality is he's been around. Dr. Gordon, good day to you. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. I'm doing very well. It's a complex and busy time, and I'm doing fine. Thanks. And and where are you joining us from? Where are you I joining us? Twelve years. Mm, that's a while. Yeah, that's a while. I've known you a while. I've I've seen both of us change. You went from being a little heavier to a lot lighter. I went from having a full head of hair to having all gray hair. And <laughs> so, anyway, we've gotten wiser. How's that? We're wiser for the better. <laughs> yes. So I'm going to let my listeners know because many of them do not know you. But Dr. Gordon is a Harvard-educated psychiatrist, is internationally recognized for using self-awareness, self-care, and group support to heal population-wide psychological trauma. He's traveled the world doing that, actually. He is the founder and executive director of Nonprofit Center for Mind-Body Medicine in Washington, D.C., which I presume that's where you're joining us from, a clinical professor at Georgetown Medical School, and was chairman under Presidents Clinton and G.W. Bush of the White House Commission on Complementary and Alternative Medicine Policy. This new book is really a great book about discovering wholeness in healing uh, after trauma. And I think that's where we're going to start this interview because, you know, when a lot of people think of trauma, they think of the ER room, right? It's like, hey, I went to the, you know, I had something. But there's all kinds of trauma that we experience psychologically and emotionally throughout our life. And you mentioned trauma comes at all at all at some point in our life. We all have it. Um, if you would please discuss the kinds of trauma 
that we might experience emotionally and psychologically throughout our lifetime and how self-awareness and self-care can heal the trauma. Because I think many of our listeners, whether it's a divorce or the loss of a loved one or even themselves having to deal with, um, I saw a blind man jogging today, but he wasn't blind from birth. And you think about that, you know, here's somebody where the lights went out, that's trauma, right? Having to deal with that emotionally and psychologically. I thought to myself, I was walking my dog, I was like, Dr. Gordon, how would I have dealt with this, right? So I'm asking you as a psychologist and psychiatrist, how would you tell our listeners to deal with these traumas? Well, you know, I, I think the first thing to understand, and this is one of the points that I make right at the beginning of the transformation, discovering wholeness and healing after trauma, is that trauma is going to come to all of us sooner or later. And the book came out a few months before the pandemic. Uh, and what I spoke about in, in the transformation, what I've seen over the last now 50 years of working with people who've been traumatized, including myself, is that if we're not traumatized early in life by neglect or abuse or an early childhood illness, poverty, violence in our neighborhood, wars, that we're likely to encounter trauma in uh, as young adults or in midlife when there's major disappointments in relationships, breakups, loss of a job, loss of our sense of identity, parents dying. And if it doesn't happen then, it's definitely going to happen as we grow older and deal with the inevitables of frailty, of loss of other people, and our own impending death. Yeah. Now, however, this pandemic um, has brought trauma to everyone in yes. the world. So it's no longer a matter of Oh, of thinking about, well, what about my early life and what am I, what might happen to me in the future? This is right now for I, for everyone. We're all dealing with a situation that threatens who we are, potentially threatens our lot, our lives, disrupts our relationships in profound ways, threatens many of us economically, threatens our view of the world. The world is not going to be the same after this pandemic. And that um, so it throws everything into question, which is really what trauma does. And then on top of that, particularly here in the United States, we're dealing with the murder of George Floyd and how that has brought up all of the similar killings in recent years and from long ago and the long and sordid and too often ignored history of racism and genocide in, in our country. So we're dealing not only with the personal shocks and the personal uncertainty, we're dealing with a collective uncertainty. What's going to happen to our society? How are we going to function again? How is each, each of us going to function again? Plus, on top of that, how do we deal with the injuries and sins of racism and genocide? In ourselves, how do we come to terms with them and learn from them? And then how do we move ahead? So right now, uh, this conversation is, I think, particularly important and particularly relevant because it's affecting everybody who's listening to or watching us, that this is 
this is happening to us now. And one of the things I want to mention uh, is that during this time, it's not only the trauma that is happening now that we're confronted with, but also for many, many people, and we can talk more about this in detail, previous traumas are arising. I don't know if you've seen this, Greg, in yourself or other people, but all kinds of things. Children, for example, who were neglected or abused, or adults, I'm sorry, who were neglected or abused as children, when they're separated now from people who are meaningful to them, often those feelings of abandonment are coming up with, with a vengeance. Well, I think that w- one of the things that all of our listeners, including yourself, were dealing with is just the isolation. And we, we are aware, uh, if, you're, if, you're, if you're self-aware at all, you're aware that isolation in of itself uh, creates health problems, right? We, we know that the more older people are isolated, they have shorter lifespans and they have more health conditions. And that whole connection uh, just with another human being is a big issue today. Absolutely. You're, you're spot on that that sense of, of isolation is, uh, is devastating to people now. And that's part of what is exacerbating all of these sort of previous psychological issues, concerns, physical conditions as well. I don't know how many people I've talked with, for, for example, whose pain syndromes or migraine headaches or, um, or rheumatoid arthritis have flared during this time. And I think the isolation as well as the uncertainty has been a major contributor. And, and, the, and our, well, our routines, if you want to call them that, have been upset. And that uncertainty, uh, putting that back together and thinking, is it going to come back together the way it was? Just the routine of going, you know, I have a local YMCA I've supported for years. I go in there for spin classes and yoga and meditation and, you know, it's all gone. Um, and it, it still isn't back yet, right? And we're now three months down the road. Um, and, and that is a disruption that I think a lot of people are thinking about more than you think. It's like, how do I get back to some semblance of, you know, what was? And like you said, it isn't going to be. It is not going to be. It's not going to come back to that. So you're right. And so the, the challenge is how do, how, do, how do we find equivalence for those connections? This is, so it's not only about the skills, the kinds of skills that I teach in the transformation that, that, you, that you know about, but it's also how do we, I have the connections that help me, you know, really experience myself as who I am. I'm a social being. I'm involved with other people. You know, I think, though, that for many people, what has happened during this time of isolation is that they have reached out. And I want to encourage everybody to, to do that, that this is a, it's a universal need and one of the most crucial factors in recovering from and moving through and beyond trauma is the support of other people. And it's not going to look the same. It's it's likely going to be on a screen. I don't know how much time you spend on the screen. I'm on a screen six, eight, 10, 12 hours a day sometimes. Too too much, too much. Um, And I, I see that, you know, and you tell a really interesting story in the book, in your invitation, you tell a story about, 
Azar, is it? A little girl who was lost her family in the Gaza neighborhood in 2014. I thought this was a pretty significant story. So could you tell that story? Because the significance of the practical tools and techniques of self-care that she learned as part of losing her whole family. And you traveled to all of these various places and have been there um, and actually experienced this. And while we in the United States look at trauma in one way, when you go to places like that and you see what people are going through, it kind of makes your trauma look <laughs> maybe not so much, right? So Well, yes. But, you know, it's... Um I'm, you know, I'm thinking here because everybody's trauma for them is is very significant because the problem is that trauma disables us, you know, makes it difficult to feel hope, makes it difficult to feel grounded or connected to other people. So, yeah, Azar's story, that's the story I tell early on in the transformation, is a story that is an emblem of the damage that can be done by psychological trauma. And also the, the the possibilities. And uh, she's a when I met her, she's a nine year old girl. She lives in Gaza, and I met her not long about five months after the 2014 war between Hamas and Israel. And we've been working in Gaza since well, I've started going there in 2002, and I've been maybe 20 times. And Gaza, as probably our many of our listeners know is now completely shut off from the rest of the world. They're closed on one side by Israel, on the other side by Egypt. It's a Palestinian territory, and it's it's ruled by Hamas, and it's a pretty tough rule inside Gaza as well. Very high levels of unemployment. And they've had three major wars in the last oh, 12, 14 years. And in the 2014 war, uh, a number, there were about 2,000 people killed in Gaza, 500 children, 2,000 people altogether. And in we were working there, and we've trained now, I think, close to 1,500 people in Gaza, health professionals, educators, leaders of women's groups, and other community leaders. And they use the model of self-care and group support that I developed at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine that I describe in the transformation. So teaching many different kinds of self-care techniques, slow, deep, soft belly breathing to balance out the fight or flight response, shaking and dancing and moving the body to get rid of some of the tension and the frozen bodies, the shut down bodies and withdrawn emotional state that we get into when we're overwhelmed by trauma. Drawings, guided imagery, genograms, family trees, all these different techniques. So Azar was in a group with seven other children, all of whom had lost their fathers in this 2014 war. And she began the group, and there's much more detailed description in, in the transformation. She began the group, and in the first session, first of nine sessions, we asked her to draw herself with her biggest problem asked all the kids. And when we do this with adults, we ask adults to do drawings too, and that helps them access their imagination and get out of this sort of often locked down rational mind. And the drawing she drew was of her house crumbling. Next to the house was a bloody body, which she identified as her father. 
Next to him were two more bloody bodies, her uncles, and a little ways away, her aunt, also bloodied. And she said, uh, and overhead there were Israeli planes. And she said, these Israeli planes, they bombed my house. They killed my father, my two uncles, and my aunt. And then Azar was in the picture. She was this little tiny stick figure in the corner with her mouth turned down. Next drawing was to draw yourself with your problem solved. So that was her biggest problem. Her whole world destroyed. Home, father, uncles, aunt, everything gone. And she hopeless. The solution to her problem that she imagined, she drew herself and mm, I said, what's that? She said, that's me. I'm in the grave with my father. There is nothing for me in this life. The only solution is for me to be dead and to be with my father, whom I love. And I, I've seen a lot of drawings and I've seen, worked with a lot of people traumatized by wars and climate-related disasters. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. But I could feel the heaviness in me as well as what was going on with her. And then... Um, she showed me the drawings she did at the end of nine groups where she and the other kids learned these techniques is guided imagery and movement and soft belly breathing and uh, using uh, trying to access their imagination to find support in their family and the community. And in this set of drawings, it was like a totally different world. The picture she drew of herself was a big girl. She filled up, much of the page. She was in a skirt. She had brown curls. She had a smile on her face. She had an arrow going from her chest, and it was through a heart. And the heart, inside the heart, written in the English she was learning in school, it said, I love nature. And the arrow was headed with a tree for a tree with lots of leaves and blossoms. And she said, since I've been in these groups, I've learned to love nature. I've learned to love myself. And then the next picture was, what do you want to be? How do you see yourself in the future? Which was kind of equivalent to who would you be without your biggest problem? And this time she's there. She's got a stethoscope in her ears and the resonator of the stethoscope where you pick up sounds is on the chest of somebody lying on a table. And I said, what's going on here? And she said, I am a heart doctor. That's my patient lying on the table. Uh, there are a lot of people in Gaza whose hearts have been hurt since the war. I am going to help them. And there were five other figures standing next to the table. I said, who are these? And she said, oh, those are my other patients. They're waiting for me. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a great... Happen. Yeah. It's this little girl who was in despair, only saw dying and being with her father as the solution to the only future for her. And she's not alone in Gaza. Many of the kids, including other kids in her group, felt the same way at the beginning. Coming through the group, using these techniques of self-care, the very simple science-based biological and psychologically sound techniques that I describe in the transformation 
nobody preaching to her, you should be a good girl, you shouldn't feel that way. What she was able to do was to discover inside herself the resources that could bring her through this intense period of mourning and of trauma toward a future that was constructive and joyous for her. Yeah. That's the possibility. That's the promise. Well, I mean, look, when you do visualization like that and you ask somebody to draw a picture and, you know, in your mind's eye, you can move them away from that. Um, that's so important. And, and you do that so masterfully through the practices. And if you could, would you speak to the listeners about the biology of trauma and how our bodies are conditioned to preserve us? Um, that was a section in the book that I thought was important. Sure. Thank you, Greg. And, and, it, and it is really important because we, we often don't pay attention to it. But basically, when we've been traumatized, there are two reactions, which, as you say, are in themselves life-saving. Um, the first is fight or flight. A predator comes to any animal, any vertebrate any animal with a backbone the animal has an instinctive reaction and it's either to fight or to run to escape and so heart rate goes up blood pressure goes up the blood flows to the big muscles in the body that are responsible for fighting or for running digestion decreases the area of the brain called the amygdala responsible for fear and anger is firing very strongly Areas of the brain in the frontal cortex and human beings that are responsible for thoughtful decision making and self-awareness and compassion are kind of shut down. It's a life or death situation. This response, fight or flight, is a life-saving response. We all need it. In human beings, we respond not just when there's a physical threat, or a threat to our physical well-being when there's a major emotional threat. There's a fight with your boss or a fight with a partner or you're concerned about a loss or you're worried you're not going to have much money or there's a pandemic raging. We go into fight or flight and too often we stay in that state. And if we stay in that state, it produces ongoing anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress, high blood pressure, contributes to diabetes, makes digestion poor, makes our muscles tense, gives us pain. Not a good thing. Second response that's potentially life-saving is the freeze response. Fight or flight is mediated by what's called the sympathetic nervous system. That's one half of the autonomic nervous system. The freeze response is mediated by the oldest part of the other half of the autonomic nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system. And what it does is when we're in a situation, whether we're an animal or a person, and we're completely overwhelmed, if we're a, a gazelle in the jaws of a lion, if we're a human being in a situation where we're being beaten by people who are much bigger than we are or raped or indeed in a situation like the pandemic where the situation feels overwhelming and inescapable, our body shuts down, may collapse, we withdraw emotionally, we become numb, we put out endorphins to numb 
our pain and we protect ourselves. Once again, in an acute situation, it can be life-saving or sanity-saving. People feel, I'm not there. I don't feel the pain. Somehow I was able to deal with having been beaten or having been raped. It felt like I left my body. The problem is, again, when that state of being frozen continues over days, weeks, months, years. Now, often when we've been traumatized, we have some symptoms of continuing flight or fight, fight or flight, and some symptoms of continuing freeze. So we're anxious, we're agitated, we're not as compassionate to other people, we're having difficulty sleeping, difficulty focusing, all fight or flight symptoms that are continuing. And we may have freeze symptoms, not so easy to relate to other people. We feel shut down emotionally. So the program that we have at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine that Azar and the other girls and boys in Gaza experienced, that we've trained 6,000 people in, that we've used with many hundreds of thousands of people, and this is the same program I teach in the transformation, provides antidotes right at the beginning to fight or flight and to freeze. Basic antidote to fight or flight that we use at the beginning, there are many that we use, but the simplest one is slow, deep breathing, in through the nose, out through the mouth, with the belly soft and relaxed. It is the antidote to fight or flight. It brings us back into physiological and psychological balance. And then we also use active, that's a concentrative meditation, technically, part of every religious and spiritual tradition in the world. We also use expressive meditations like shaking and dancing, and those are enormously effective in breaking up the freeze response. So you shake your body for five or six minutes, and then you relax for a couple minutes, and then just let your body move. And that helps to break up those trauma-frozen, shut-down bodies, helps to bring up emotions that we've suppressed. So those two techniques, and I'm very glad you asked about the biology, work directly on the biology. They bring us back into balance. And as we use them, we realize that even though the situation outside of us, like this pandemic, we can't alter that but we can alter the way we respond to it. We can change ourselves and change as we deal with fight or flight and we deal with freeze, the way our minds work also changes. We have more confidence. We're more relaxed. We can focus. We can solve problems more easily, relate to other people more easily. So it can change everything inside us and make us open to all the other techniques of self-care that we teach and that I talk about in the transformation and also to any other approaches that you're interested in using to help and heal yourself. Well, the important thing is Dr. Gordon is that you're providing a technique and a process to help people get through a very difficult and challenging time. And they may not currently some of our listeners, a lot of our listeners are meditators. um, But the whole element, the whole part of the book is, you know, how, what are these techniques that you use? And you say, what is the trauma healing diet that you discuss in chapter 10? Um, I think that that was a good one. And you also said some of the effects on the gastrointestinal tract as a result of trauma 
and how we end up with heartburn or IBS or other ailments that are caused by trauma. I think if you if you talked about that, people would uh, it would be very beneficial to them because um, I think they know that there's a correlation between, as you said, uh, the endorphins or adrenaline running fast, that fight or flight, that adrenaline releases, uh, it causes all kinds of digest- digestion problems. Um, we know that. I know because I suffered from anxiety attacks for years, and I know exactly how my body reacted to that. And until I started, believe it or not, back then at Scripps, biofeedback, because I went through biofeedback, putting electrodes on my heads, that led to meditation. I literally had been in with endoscopes going down my stomach, uh, all kinds of things happening to me. And they would always say, well, there's nothing wrong. Uh, And the reality was meditation is what fixed all of those problems. So I think if you could uh, give our listeners a little bit about the trauma diet. Sure. Well, uh, I agree with you. Meditation is central to this work. Yeah. And so I'm very glad to hear that so many people are um, who were reaching are meditators. It's it's absolutely crucial. Uh, and, and we use many different kinds of meditation to so helpful in restoring physiological and psychological balance and also can be crucial in uh, using food as medicine. That mindful eating is an intrinsic part of the trauma healing diet. And so, Greg, what you're referring to is that trauma affects our digestion just as surely, just as completely, and often just as devastatingly as it does our brain. Right. And what what it does is it affects every aspect of digestion, from food choice to how we chew our food and how fast we eat to what to the secretions of hydrochloric acid. In an intrinsic factor, which are crucial to digestion in the stomach, to the way our small intestine absorbs nutrients, to the way our large intestine does its work of excretion. And for good measure, um, trauma also affects the, the liver and the pancreas and the way they secrete hormone, uh, the way they secrete substances that are necessary for digestion. So to simplify, and this is, this is the longest chapter in the transformation because there's so much important information, and also because I've never seen it written about anywhere else. So I want it to be really inclusive. But basically, when we're traumatized, we tend to eat, many of us, very fast. We're anxious, and we're agitated, and so we're eating fast. And we also tend often to gravitate toward comfort foods, foods that are very refined carbohydrates, often fatty, often in addition to being sugary, salty. And we don't do that because we're dopes. We do that because those foods increase the serotonin and increase the dopamine and and increase the endorphins in our brains. So they're calming to us, they make us feel better, and they make us relieve some of our psychological as well as our physiological pain. The problem is that that's a short-term solution But long-term, they do a great deal of damage, more damage to our brain and our digestion. I'll just talk about the small intestine because that's a crucial part of, uh, of the intestinal tract that's damaged by trauma. In the small intestine, ordinarily, 
the cells that line the small intestine, they're called endothelial cells, are very close together to keep proteins that shouldn't be migrating into the bloodstream from migrating into the bloodstream. When we've been traumatized, in many people, those cells separate from one another. We no longer have the tight junctions, and we have what's called a leaky gut, which means that proteins that are not supposed to be going into our bloodstream leak across our small intestine, into our bloodstream, and they cause inflammatory or can cause inflammatory reactions everywhere in our bodies, including our brain. And one of the proteins that does that for many, many people is gluten. So it's not only that small percentage of people who are diagnosably um, sensitive to gluten, but many other people under ongoing stress become sensitive to gluten and to casein and the proteins that are present in milk. Mm -hmm. And so they develop inflammatory syndromes. So we need to repair the gut. And we may need, as part of our trauma healing diet, not only to eat healthy whole foods, and there, there are many healthy diets, and I, I talk about them in, uh, in the chapters on the trauma healing diet, but also, at least for a while, to eliminate some of the most likely culprits that are causing uh, that are taking advantage of the leaky gut to cause inflammation in our bodies, like gluten, like milk and milk products. And just mention one other major change in the small intestine. We have a microbiome, and pretty much everybody knows that word now. It's the trillions of bacteria that live in our small intestine. They're very important for digestion. They're very important for immunity. And they are also very important in conveying signals back to our brain through the vagus nerve, conveying signals that help our brain to repair when it has suffered and been damaged by trauma and stress. When we have been traumatized, our microbiome gets out of whack. The bad bacteria from the large intestine tend to migrate back up into the small intestine, the good bacteria and the microbiome decrease in numbers. That means that the vagus nerve, which is the antidote to the fight or flight response that quiets us when we meditate and breathe slowly and deeply, isn't able, as far as we can tell, to bring the same um, sort of restorative signals back to the brain to restore the portions of the brain that are damaged by trauma. So. In addition to eating basically a whole foods, additive-free diet, eliminating some of the proteins that may be responsible for inflammatory reactions, we need to be having a lot of um, vegetables that help to uh, repopulate the microbiome, and we should be taking probiotics, supplements, at least for a few months, supplements of acidophilus and lactobacillus to rebuild our microbiome. If we can work to rebuild our digestion, not only will we be able to absorb nutrients far better, uh, not only will we be able to eat with more comfort, we will also be making a major contribution to our psychological well-being and to our ability to connect with other people. So I'm very glad you brought it up. And I think 
people really need to look at this chapter on the trauma healing diet and un- understand what needs to be done because we, we, we don't think about it ordinarily. We just think, oh, okay, you know, I'll do, I'll go, I'll have to have some psychotherapy or maybe I'll do some meditation. That's great. But there's a fundamental way that we can alter our biology through nutrition. I just want to add one more thing uh, is that we can also make major alterations in our biology and psychology by moving our bodies. So, that nutrition, but also physical movement can be major contributors to trauma healing. Well, and again, for my listeners, it's all in the book. Uh, all you have to do is get a copy. We'll put a link to Amazon. Uh, and Dr. Gordon, I could be on here with you for hours speaking about this because you're a wealth of knowledge in this area. Um, but I think for my listeners, um, and I'll have one kind of close wrap-up question here, but they need to go out and get the book called The Transformation. Um, all of the things that Dr. Gordon has been speaking about is uh, inside the book. They also can go to your website uh, to get more information about uh, your organization and what you do. And that is at cmbm.org. Go to cmbm.org. Um, you also can donate to the Institute there. You can learn more about the book there as well. Um, you can um, access, uh, he's got all kinds of things to access online, Mind Body Skills Group. Uh, there's a lot of things going on there. It's a very comprehensive website. So again, we'll put links to that website. Uh, cmbm.org is where you want to go. Um, the book, you're going to have a link to go to Amazon. Now, um, you, in wrapping this up, you speak about the use of autogenetic and biofeedback therapy to reduce the, reduce the effects of trauma. Um, can you explain to the listeners how we can use this to treat our trauma? Sure. Thank you, Greg. And, and thanks, for, thanks for mentioning the, the website. Everyone who's interested, we have programs for you. We have free webinars. We have free Facebook Lives. Uh, we also have, as Greg said, online mind-body skills group where you can learn these tools and techniques. And we also have a training. Uh, we're doing, we put everything online now and we're doing a full training. So if you happen to be somebody who is a clinician or somebody who simply wants to bring this work to your community, take a look at what we have to offer and, and look at our training programs. And we have scholarships. We want people who need to be part of our work to to have it available to them. So take a look and see what we're up to. As far as autogenics and biofeedback, I'm glad you mentioned it. Autogenics is a system of using simple phrases that mobilize the parasympathetic nervous system, the vagus nerve, basically, to create relaxation. There It's a kind of more sophisticated antidote to the fight or flight response. And these phrases go back about 90 years um, to Johannes Schultz, uh, who was a German neurologist who came up with them. And the phrase is very simple. It's like, my arms are warm and heavy. I am at peace. So it's a kind of um, guided imagery, self-suggestion. It's used, autogenics is used very, very widely in Europe. There are thousands of papers 
published on the use of autogenics to decrease anxiety, improve mood, decrease high blood pressure, decrease blood sugar and diabetics. Not so many in the American literature, very little. So what we do and what I do in the transformation is to combine those autogenic phrases with biofeedback. And biofeedback is a, an approach that dates back to the 1960s. And uh, Elmer and Elise Green and Joe Kamaya and others developed biofeedback. And, and essentially, it's very simple also. It's giving us signals from that we register with our senses that teach our brain and our mind how to control biological functioning. So it signals about our biology that give us feedback to our mind that in turn enable us to control our biology. So the biofeedback that we use and that I describe in the transformation is temperature sensitive, um, either thermistors, which are kind of digital readouts, or simple bio dots, which change color with temperature. And when we're uh, under stress and we're in fight or flight, and I'm sure we've all noticed this, um, yeah, we're, 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 we're ready, we're aggressive, we're, big muscles are tense, heart rate's fast, our hands are cold and clammy. That's what happens when we're under stress. When you use autogenic phrases, your hands start to warm up. You're giving your hands suggestions. And the way our brains are wired, and I talk about the biology of this in, in the transformation, we're telling, essentially, we're telling our blood vessels to open up and our hands are getting warm. So my arms are warm and heavy. I am at peace. There are six autogenic phrases that are basic phrases. You say them each six times to yourself. Before you start using the phrases, you look at the little bio dot. And if you're in a state of stress, anxiety, bio dots likely to be brown or yellow or maybe green. You say the autogenic phrases to yourself. It takes maybe 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes to say those phrases slowly to yourself, repeating them to yourself. Open your eyes again. You look at the dot and almost always the dot has changed color. It's gone from being brown or yellow to being green or green to being blue or purple, which means the temperature has gone up. And at what you realize when you ask people what was it like, they say, oh, I feel calmer or the room looks brighter or I feel I'm sitting more comfortably in my chair. And oh, my temperature's gone up. The dot has changed. So it's a beautiful, simple technique, especially for those of us who are kind of uh, have a kind of engineering mind. You know, we want to see the proof. Right. And we can not only feel the proof in ourselves as we can with all the techniques that I'm teaching, but we can also see right away an objective measure. The biofeedback tells us. Well, and the and the little dots that are sensitive to your skin temperature are way easier than when I go back to the olden days where the electrodes were on my forehead and, you know, around there to be able to actually watch on a screen what was going on. So a lot easier to use. And, you know, you have given, you have imparted on our listeners, uh, not just a lot of information, but a lot of practical advice of things they can do, uh, the breathing techniques and the writing and the journaling is another thing and moving the body and the ability to change your diet. And, you know, if I was to synopsize all that 
you know, get the book, go through the chapters, highlight what you need, go to the website. Dr. Gordon has um, not just information, but he, while he may not be accessible, people in his staff are. And we appreciate you, uh, Dr. Gordon, so much for, you know, helping our listeners to understand more about this. And I hope they will take it uh, one step further. And that is to practice what you've talked about and purchase the book and go to your website to learn more and watch the videos that you've already created. Um, Namaste to you for today. Thank you so much for being on uh, Inside Personal Growth and spending a few minutes with us about your new book called The Transformation. Great. Thank you so much.